Uh, my name is Luther, if we haven't met before, and uh, keep, keep that passage in Isaiah open. We're going to be looking at Isaiah 11 and 12 in the next little bit. And uh, can I say, I was down at the snow recently, and when grass pops through the snow and you actually wanted to be skiing, uh, I wasn't happy, I was... <laughs> I was miserable, <laughs> but uh, but there you go. And uh, but if you're looking forward to spring, then grass coming through the snow is actually a really, really good thing. Uh, but I want to I want to start by uh, showing you a bit of a music video, and uh, so I'll show you this music video. And the idea is I, I want you to watch out. Um, who who is this girl singing to, or who's she singing about? And I want you to sort of talk to the person next to you after I've shown it. So who's she singing about, or who's she singing to? And uh, who do you think is the audience? So uh, just have a look at this. Turn it up, Sylph. Sing along if you want. Okay, so, so talk with each other, um, uh, you can try and work out what the song was and who, who sung it if you don't know it, and uh, who do you think she's singing to, or about, person next to you, if you could recognise the words. <coughs> Uh, that, that, sh- that should be long enough, I reckon. Now, could someone, could someone tell me who... who uh, hey, have you heard that song before? Okay, you've heard it. You know, Tell me, what's the name of the song? Okay, that's pretty obvious. You've got the love. Who sung it? 
Yeah, brilliant. Thank you, everyone. Okay, so with Florence in the machine, it's not on your iPad, Pete. Yeah, yeah, or on your iPod. Now, tell me, uh, it's a big hit. Even if you haven't heard it on the radio or wherever, uh, you know, you might have heard it on, um, on, on MasterChef or on Dom- Domestic Blitz, that great show, uh, or Sex in the City uh, when it was on. But uh, so, so what do you reckon? Who is she singing about or who is she singing to? Tell me. Ooh, hang on, silence, silence. Okay, all right. So, so maybe you don't know who she's singing to, but I reckon the words of the, this song is, uh, is actually quite uh, beautiful when you think about it. Have a look. She says, I'm not going to sing it. Um, Sometimes I feel like throwing my hands in the air. I know I can count on you. Sometimes I feel like saying, Lord, I just don't care. But you've got the love I need to see me through. Sometimes it seems that the going is just too rough. And things go wrong no matter what I do. Now and then it seems that life is just too much. But you've got the love I need to see me through. And the next line, I think. Where'd it go? Oh, I've missed it. Anyway, the next bit goes. When food is gone, you are my daily meal. When friends are gone, I know my saviour's love is real. Your love is real. You've got the love. You've got the love. You've got the love. You've got the love. You've got the picture, right? Yeah, now tell me. Do you know what this song is about? It's actually a song about dependence upon Jesus in the hard times of life. That's what it's about. And, and the words are beautiful. I mean, take away the film clip. That was the most modest film clip that I could find on YouTube related to that song. But from what I could tell, there's a total disconnection in that song between the head and the heart between what the words that uh, she was singing and what she felt um, herself. You see, the song, when she sings it, it's deeply passionate, right? She's, she's into it and her hands are in the air and there's hundreds of thousands of people watching and there's emotion and there's passion and you can tell that her heart is, almost cer- is in it, right? But there's a, almost certainly no conviction that goes with the words from that song. Uh, why do I know that? Well, because uh, she didn't write the song. Uh, it was written by a Christian lady about 30 years before her, uh, wrote that song. And uh, from the interviews on the internet, it's, it's, it's pretty clear that she doesn't believe the words that are being sung in that song. And so passionately pouring out with all this emotion, this song, and yet there's no connection with what's actually going on in her head. Beautiful words, beautiful words about dependence upon Jesus in times of life when it's tough but certainly no transformed life that seems to go with it. And it's true, isn't it, that, you know, when you read the Bible, that God wants us to be whole. He wants our whole lives to be poured out to him. He wants to transform our minds so that our hearts are transformed and so that it actually flows out with lips that praise him and lives that serve him. He wants there to be this deep connection between what's going on in our head and what's being experienced In our heart, worship in the Bible is always a whole-of-life thing that we do imperfectly, but that's authentic worship, where there's this connection between what's going on in here and what's coming out uh, from here. And what what I'm going to pray is that Isaiah 11 and 12 sort of takes us to this place, and I'm going to pray that God would do that transformation. He'd work in our heads, uh, but also in our hearts. Uh, So why don't I pray? Let's pray. Um, Heavenly Father, we know that Jesus does have the love to see us through. Father, we thank you that in the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ, we know 
that you love us, that you care for us, that in the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, you have promised us a new creation that will be glorious and magnificent. Uh, when one day that transformation that you've begun in us by your Holy Spirit will be complete and there will be a real and lasting connection between what we believe in our mind and what we express from our heart. Uh, I pray tonight, Father, you would transform us uh, through your word and I pray this for Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, so far throughout Isaiah, as Cameron reminded us of, we've seen how uh, the, the remnant of Judah have been under judgment um, because of Sorry, the rest of Judah have been under judgment and so have the other nations for their rebellion against God. And so you see this, right? And in these intervening chapters, you see God's judgment comes upon Syria or Aram. It comes upon uh, Israel. God brings his judgment on Judah. He even then brings his judgment on the great superpower Assyria, who he used this foreign nation to bring judgment on his own people. And then God brings his own judgment on the rebellion of Assyria. He'll later even bring his own judgment on the nation of Babylon uh, that would uh, see the, the people from Jerusalem exiled to Babylon, but then the return under the Persian king Cyrus, and we'll see this later on Isaiah, that God has pronounced his judgment on these nations. And this will work itself out in history where their rebellion will be uh, brought, judgment will be brought about because of their rebellion against God. Um, have a look at the context of this passage. In, so chapter 10, verses 33 and 34 of what is happening to the nations. It says, Look, the Lord God of hosts will chop off the branches with terrifying power and the tall trees will be cut down. The high trees felled. He is clearing the thickets of the forest with an axe and Lebanon with its majesty will fall. Basically, Isaiah pictures judgment as like this massive deforestation. You know when, when forests are cut down and only the stumps are left? Well, that's what's going to happen to the nations. As these former proud and arrogant nations that have rebelled against God will be cut down to the stump. The oaks and the cedars will fall under the judgment of God. And yet in the midst of that picture of this utter devastation of deforestation of the nations you have this message in verse 1 of Isaiah 11. It says this, have a look. It says, Then, out of this, a shoot will grow from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots will bear fruit. Because the message of the Bible is that Judah is not completely decimated. Out of the stump that is left of Judah, a shoot is actually going to come out of this stump. Now, what is that talking about? It's a shoot from the stump of Jesse. Well, if you remember uh, other parts of the Old Testament, you'll know that Jesse was the father of the great King David. right? And you might remember the story in 1 Samuel 16 when the prophet Samuel comes to anoint the next king of Judah. And he comes and he looks around all of Jesse's sons. And then, you know, they're sort of, you know, big and, and good at doing manual stuff. And then all of a sudden, none of them are chosen. And then you've got the handsome runt, David. He's out, he's the little shepherd boy, he's plucked from obscurity and, and out of nowhere becomes the king of Judah, the Messiah of God's people. And here's Isaiah saying, well in the future, he's painting a picture of what's going to happen in the future. Out of the midst of this terrible judgment will come a shoot from Jesse. Out of obscurity from the backwater town of Bethlehem would come a son of David, a king out of the line of Jesse and of David. 
and he will rule the nations. And what sort of king will he be? What will he be like? Well, have a look at verse 2. This is what Isaiah starts to paint this picture of this king. He says, The Spirit of the Lord will rest on him. Now, what does that mean? Well, you know throughout the Old Testament how the Holy Spirit goes and rests on particular people and equips them for different things. So the blokes who build the tabernacle, they get the Spirit to help them to do that. Have you got the prophets who are speaking the Word of God? They get the Spirit to enable them to do that. Uh, the Spirit energizes the judges, uh, enables uh, Samson to, to fight. Um, I mean, who's, um, who's seen the Bible on TV in the last few weeks? You've been enjoying it? It's good, isn't it? Right? How easy is that to talk about your, to your friends about Jesus the next day? Just watch the Bible. Just say, did you see the Bible on TV last night? Yeah, cool. Okay, start talking about it. It's easy, right? And, it, and it's good. And I don't know what you thought of Samson and Delilah last week and the depiction of things, but it's been pretty good. But here, Isaiah promises that a spirit-empowered king will come. But he won't just have the spirit on and off. Right, The Spirit will dwell on him, will remain on him. And what will the Spirit bring to this king? What will he be like? We'll have a look at the rest of verse 2. He'll have a spirit of wisdom and understanding. You know, when Solomon became king, the very thing that God asked him, he said, Solomon, I'll give you anything you want. And Solomon says, well, do you remember what Solomon asked for? He asked for wisdom and for understanding. And God said, well, that's exactly what you should be asking for. Right? That's exactly what you want. And here God promises not only a spirit-empowered king, but a wise king. What else is he like? Look at verse 2. He'll have a spirit of counsel and of power. I mean, what does that mean? Right? This could equally be translated as a spirit of military prowess. Like later on in Isaiah, it actually the same phrase is translated as strategy and military strength. It's basically it's saying this Messiah will, will come. He will be a mighty warrior king. A wise king, a spirit-empowered king. What else does it say? He'll have a spirit of knowledge and a fear of the Lord. You know, again and again in Proverbs, when it says the beginning of fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Do you think that the kings of Judah at this point feared the Lord? No, no. Ahaz, for example, they trusted the nations. They made alliances with the nations. They didn't fear the Lord. They didn't put their trust in him. But he is a king who would actually give God the awe and the respect that he deserves. That's what it would be like. He would be a godly king. But more than that, have a look at verse 3. It says, His delight will be in the fear of the Lord. He will not judge by what he sees with his eyes, and he will not execute justice by what he hears with his ears. Wouldn't that be fantastic? Right? I know as a parent, right, I'm always flawed as a judge because this often happens in our household. The two girls will come running down the hallway. And it's like, she kicked me and she pinched me first. And it's like, and it's her fault. And, and you know, as the judge, as the father, you've got to, and, and Lenore's sort of trying to work out what's happened. And Hannah will say, no, no, she started, she kicked me. And it's like, no, no, but she pinched me. And, and all of a sudden, you've got to weigh up all the evidence as a parent. And you've got to say, right, okay, I, I don't know exactly what happened, but based on what I'm hearing, I think, Maddie, no TV for the rest of the day for you, and Hannah to your room to do something, okay? And all of a sudden, whenever you do this, right, as a parent, one of them always feels ripped off. It's like, it's like you, you can never get it right, and they always feel like you don't get it right. 
And so sometimes we need to actually say to our kids, and we do say this, um, life's not always fair, right? <laughs> it is true, right? Your teachers will get it wrong, right? Your referee on the netball court will get it wrong, right? Politicians will get it wrong. It's not, they're not just judges. Even fantastic fathers will sometimes get it wrong. But here God promises a judge who will never get it wrong. He will get it right every time. Look at verse 4 of Isaiah 11. When the Messiah comes, he will judge the poor righteously and execute justice for the oppressed of the land. He will strike the land with discipline from his mouth and he will kill the wicked with a command from his lips. Righteousness will be a belt around his loins. Faithfulness will be a belt around his waist. I mean, what a king. What a king. And from this point in the Bible, basically once this promise is made, the people of God are looking forward to when this king will come. When will he come? When will a king with these characteristics come? And that's what the rest of the Bible is waiting for. And do they have to wait long? Well, they don't have to actually wait that long. Uh, Soon Ahaz's son, Hezekiah, becomes king. Now he's the Messiah. Because Messiah, do you know Messiah just means anointed king? So anointed one. So basically all the kings of Judah are messiahs. They're all messiahs. But so the next messiah comes, Hezekiah. What's he like? Is he a good king? Starts off okay, but then, you know, not so flash. How about a little bit later on? How about Josiah? How's he go? He's the next messiah. Is Is he a good king? Yeah. How's he go in the end? Oh, I don't know. He's certainly not this. 700 years later, though, a young virgin actually hears from an angel that appears to her, and the Holy Spirit, uh, the angel says to her, The Holy Spirit has come upon you, Mary, and you will give birth to a child, and he will reign on David's throne forever. And this boy, he would grow in wisdom and in knowledge and in grace. And at 30 years of age, the Holy Spirit would come when he's in the Jordan River and would come and dwell upon him. And God would say, this is my son whom I love. With him, I'm well pleased. And at that point, Jesus goes out and he starts preaching and he gets into the synagogue at Nazareth and he pulls out the Isaiah scroll and he reads Isaiah 61 and he says, the spirit of the Lord is on me. Jesus is saying, I am the king that is just and righteous and powerful. And I've come. And he goes out and he preaches. And he heals the sick. And he raises the dead. And he teaches with authority. And it's clear that the promised king of Isaiah 11 has come. And some people go, he's here. And others go, kill him. There's no king but Caesar. Now, at this point, I want to ask, um, do you know that king? Do you know that king? That faithful, trustworthy, righteous, powerful king. Do you know him? Are you spending your life waiting for him to come back and living for him? I hope you do. But you know when this king comes, he's actually going to transform his people. Um, have a look at um, Isaiah chapter 11, verse 6. This is the transformation the king will bring. Verse 6. When he comes, the wolf will live with the lamb, and the leopard will lie down with the goat. 
The calf, the young lion, the fattening will be together and a child will lead them. The cow and the bear will graze. The young ones will lie down together and the lion will eat straw like the ox. An infant will play beside the cobra's pit and a toddler will put his hand into a snake's den. None will harm or destroy another on my entire holy mountain. For as the land will be as full of the knowledge of the Lord as the sea is filled with water. He paints this picture of perfect peace, of perfect prosperity. Right? Predators and prey will be reconciled to each other. There'll be no enmity between humans and animals anymore. Right? It's, like, it's like a return to the Garden of Eden. Remember in the Garden of Eden when, when humanity, we were given this task of ruling over the animals and, and things were okay? And, and we didn't have to actually feed the animals, uh, fear the animals. And at this point, in verse 6, Isaiah says, At this time, do you know, there'll be little kids, and they'll be just, you know, leading around the, the lions and the leopards, just, you know, playing at their place, at their, you know, preschool, just having a leopard over, right? Where's Ryan? Right? Could you imagine that? In, in South Africa, you'd be able to go out on a safari, and you wouldn't need a jeep. You just go along and just go up and pat the hippo. Ah, oh, friendly hippo. Right? Could you imagine that? <laughs> we can't imagine that because we're at enmity with the animals and you know, we know that if you hang out with a wolf too long, he'll eat you. Right? That's just what they do. And, uh, and you see here as well that in the Garden of Eden, didn't, after the fall, didn't God say that I will put enmity between you and the serpent? And yet here Isaiah pictures a time when a little toddler... We'll just be patting the cobra, just putting its hand down into the snake pit. Oh, nice patting of the snake. Could you imagine if, I can imagine if my four-year-old daughter patted the cobra. It wouldn't be like, oh, Maddie, could you, it'd be nice if you took your hand off the cobra's head. It'd be like, get out of there. Like, are you ridiculous? Right? Quick, it's going to kill you. Don't pat the snake. But here Isaiah says, there will be a time when toddlers will pat snakes. This is not our world. This is a world of perfect peace. But God promises it. He promises it. So when's it coming? Well, uh, I don't know what you've thought about promises. I, I've, uh, basically, I've, uh, I haven't talked about the election yet. So I thought I'd talk about the election that's not the election All right, so far. Who here, put your hand up if you've been utterly inspired by the election so far. Inspired. You've been inspired? Ben, you've been inspired? Oh, good on you, brother. True believer. Politician in the making. But um, can I say that the, the election's been totally uninspiring? Totally uninspiring. It's no wonder that half us don't know who to vote for because um, it seems like both parties are running for the bottom uh, just to see on the asylum seekers. Just when you thought that one party had gone as low as you could possibly get, uh, the other party leapfrogs them to see just how cruel and unusual uh, we can become as a nation. But anyway, that's, you, you can ask me about that later. But um, how about some more inspiring campaigns? The Americans are good for this. Right? How about this? Remember, JFK, you wouldn't remember. Well, some of you might. Um, a time for greatness. Isn't that a great slogan for a campaign? Or how about this? Ronald Reagan. I love this one. For president, let's make America great again. Right? Do you remember? It's fantastic. You've got him and, and the White House. I just think that really looks good. Or do you remember this? Yes, we can. Right, Obama. Sounded great. One of the greatest speeches in history in terms of oratory, but has he delivered? I'll let you make up your own mind. Uh, But not only that, in Australia, it's not just Americans that are optimists. 
How about, remember this one? Right, it's time. Remember, remember, were you inspired by that? Anyone who remembers? Right? And look at, that, look at those T-shirts. They spent big bucks on their campaign, didn't they? Hey? But tell me, why doesn't Rudd and Abbott run a campaign positive like that? Yes, we can. Let's make Australia great again. Why, why not? Why don't they run a campaign like that? It's because we're cynical. Because we've heard promises again and again and again and again, and they'll just make a policy and they'll change it again. We're cynical. We've been let down too many times. And so you, we, we would, none of those campaigns would wash with us, right? But it's not just our politicians, yeah? It's on a global scale. I mean, humanity seems to have so much promise. There's so many good things going for us, technology and medicine and knowledge. And you, you look around the world... And the world is still corrupt, and it's at war, and it's broken, and it's, desi- it's divided, and we're depressed. And yet God promises a perfect world with perfect peace. And you know what? It's begun. It has begun. When Jesus came and died on a cross and rose again, he began to usher in his kingdom of perfect peace. We're at enmity with God, you and I. But this is what he did. Look at Colossians 1 verse 20. It was through Jesus that God reconciled to himself everything to himself by making peace through the blood of his cross, whether things on earth or things in heaven. God brought peace between us and him by the blood of Jesus' cross when he died for us. And not only that, he's reconciling the the angels and the demons and the heavenly realms to himself. And so there's not only now peace between God and humanity that's on offer, but he's actually that peace that we can offer one another, that forgiveness that we can offer one another, is flowing out in transformed lives of Christians. But the work that Jesus began in establishing his kingdom has not yet come to its full fulfillment. We still don't see the glorious picture that Isaiah paints when little toddlers will pat cobras. We don't see that yet. But you know what? Jesus is the one that we can put our hopes in. He's a leader that will actually fulfill his promises. You can trust him. And Isaiah points us to him. Now what's it going to be like when God gathers his people? Uh, Look at verse 10 of Isaiah chapter 11. Uh, God says this. He says, On that day when God gathers his people, the root of Jesse will stand as a banner, that's Jesus, for the people's. The nations will seek him, and his resting place will be glorious. Now, I was trying to think of a picture that would work for this, and I came up with another American picture. Who can tell me who that is? It's Abraham Lincoln, right? And and you see the guy, he's got the, is it a sword? Yep, ready for battle, and they're rallying around the flag, right? And that's the picture that Isaiah paints, the picture of the warrior king, the messiah, He is the banner. He is the flag that the peoples will rally around and will come to. But did you notice who comes? Uh, Look at verse verse 10. It says, The nations will seek him. They will rally to this banner. And so um, it's a little bit of a hint, like we saw in Isaiah chapter 2, that when God gathers in his people at the end of time, it won't just be the remnant of Judah. It's actually going to be people from all nations. And that's a good thing. Because put your hand up here if you have Jewish descent. 
Right. It's a good thing that the nations <laughs> rallied to the banner because that's all of us. Right? But the rest of this chapter actually focuses on the rest um, of the gathered, scattered people of Israel. So look at verse 11. It says, On that day the Lord will extend his hand a second time to recover from Assyria his people, Egypt, Pathros, Cush, Elam, Shinar, Hamath, and the coasts and the islands of the west, the remnants of his people who survive. So when, when the Lord says, the Lord will extend his hand a second time, uh, what, what do you think that means? What does that mean? When did he extend his hand the first time? Well, he extended his hand the first time when he rescued his people across the Red Sea, out of Egypt, and into the Promised Land. And now he says, a second time I'm going to gather my people. So just as there was a first exodus, now this is going to be the new exodus where we will gather the remnants of his people across the Euphrates River. Um, Have a look at um, uh, verse 15, how he's going to gather the nations. The Lord will divide the Gulf of Suez. He will wave his hand over the Euphrates with his mighty wind and will split it into seven streams, letting people walk through on foot. And that's what I've tried to represent in the diagram. His people will come across the river Euphrates. They will come from everywhere to be gathered back into his land. Only this time it will be divided into seven streams and it will just be like they won't need their gumboots to walk across. They'll be able to walk across in their socks and their sandals as um, God's people do. And uh, you see verse 16, it says, There will be a highway for the remnant of his people, those who, survive, who will survive from Assyria, as there was from Israel, when they came up from the land of Egypt. In other words, all roads will lead back to Jerusalem. Now, lots of people ask, well, when did this take place? Like, you know, when you read Isaiah, how do you work out when the fulfillment of this actually happened? Well... The initial fulfilment of this happened when the exiles returned from Babylon and other places in around about 500 BC. That's when it first happened, when they were gathered back. People gathered back from the nations came. But but what Isaiah is talking about is far grander than that. It actually has to wait for further fulfilment until Jesus comes and he dies and he rises again. And what happens after that? He tells his disciples to go and make disciples of all nations, right? Baptizing in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And what do they do? They start in Judea, and they go to Samaria, and they go to the ends of the earth, and the disciples begin to gather in the nations in fulfillment of what is being said here in Isaiah 11. The nations are rallying around the Messiah, the flag, the banner. And it's not, they're not coming back to physical Israel. We don't need to move to the Middle East. They're coming back to the king, the true Israel. Now, that's happening right now. Do you know, as we hear the gospel, and as we put our trust in the Lord Jesus, God is gathering the nations to his king. That's what's happening. And so we actually play a part in this story. We, we are the fulfillment of Isaiah 11. And yet, there's still more to come. There's still more to come. It started... But not until Jesus returns will we see this in all of its fullness. Which brings me to chapter 12. And uh, I'm going to sing shortly. And um, I want you to join me. But tell me, what, um, and if you don't join me, I will be really upset. 
But um, what was the first thing that the people of Israel did when they first crossed the Red Sea and were heading towards the Promised Land? What was the first thing they did? They sang. What did they sing? A song. <laughs> Very good. Uh, it was in Exodus chapter 15. And, uh, and Terry's sort of doing a bit of a rendition over there. You can have Terry sing it to you later on. And so here's the response to the new Exodus. And so they're hearing of salvation. And then Isaiah 12, they begin to sing. I mean, what else do you do? When God has done powerful and remarkable things in your life, you tell me, what else do you do but sing? And uh, there's two halves to this song. The first half is really personal. There's lots of me's and my's and I's in it. So as we read this, I want you to imagine the parallel of your story of coming to the Lord Jesus. Have a look at Isaiah 12.1. It says, On that day you will say, I will praise you, Lord, although you were angry with me. Your anger has turned away, and you have had compassion on me. Indeed, God is my salvation. I will trust him and not be afraid. Or Yah the Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. Each one of us, don't we? Don't we all make a personal response to the salvation that's on offer in Jesus? We all do that. But there's also a corporate nature to this, that we spur each other on to sing. You see this? Look at verse 3. It says, this is what will happen. And it's a plural you. So imagine yous. It says, yous will joyfully draw water from the springs of salvation. And on that day, you will say to each other, give thanks to Yahweh, proclaim his name. So I'll go and I'll shout out to Desi. Right? Desi, give thanks to Yahweh, proclaim his name. Rob, give thanks to Yahweh, proclaim his name. Reese, give thanks to Yahweh. Proclaim his name. You see, this is what was happening. Is they were saying to each other, Rachel, you smiled, so I'm going to pick on you, right? <laughs> right? Give thanks to Yahweh, Rachel. Praise his name. That's what's going on in this passage. That's what we'll all, there's this sort of mutual encouragement to remember what God has done. Now, look at verse, the rest of verse 4. Declare that his name is exalted. Sing to Yahweh, for he has done glorious things. Let this be known throughout the earth. Cry out and sing, citizen of Zion. For the Holy One of Israel is among you in his greatness. Uh, you, know, you know when we sing in church, there's two things going on. There's a bit of a vertical thing going on, and there's a horizontal thing going on. There's a vertical thing going on. When we're singing in church, we're all praising God for the salvation that he has won for us in the Lord Jesus. And it's personal, and it's individual, and we're just thanking him and declaring his wonders. But there's also a horizontal thing going on. That we're urging one another on. As I hear, as we hear each other's voices, we're saying, declare the praises of Yahweh. Sing to him. Sing of his mighty salvation, right? And so that's why we get into it. That's why we sing. Because we're actually calling on each other to be joyful. That's what's happening. Um, uh, look at the same thing in Ephesians chapter 5 in the New Testament. Have a look at this. Instead of being drunk on wine, Paul says, be filled with the Spirit speaking to one another in psalms, in hymns, and in spiritual songs, singing and make music from your heart to the Lord, giving thanks always for everything to God the Father in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. You notice how at the start I said that I pointed out that song, 
And it said that there was a total disconnection between what was going on in the head and what was being felt in the heart. There was no core belief. There was no sort of real connection, no conviction. Now, I reckon for us sometimes the disconnect happens the other way. Right, the other way. We, we, we know these great truths of salvation in our heads. Right? We know that. But we can often lose touch with the joy that that brings uh, to our hearts, that, that we express to each other. Right? We can become a little bit sort of joyless sometimes. And, and, and we as Christians, right, shouldn't, shouldn't we sing our songs with passion because of what we've been saved from? I mean, haven't we got good things to sing about? Of course we do. I, 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 I sing next to some of you, and I hear you loudly singing, and maybe you can't sing. That's right, I can't sing. But you know what I mean? When someone is belting it out, out of tune, in the name of Jesus, I'm like, this is fantastic. right? If you're singing like a mouse, but you sing really well, that's far less encouraging than someone belting it out who can't sing. Now, sometimes I hear this excuse. Aussie men don't sing. Right? It's just not a blokey thing to do. Like, we just don't do it. And so, Luther, just, you know, and lots of our songs aren't suited to blokes singing. And so, um, there's a bit of truth in that. Uh, blokes don't sing, and sometimes our songs are a little bit girly. But um, I want to say there's only a little bit of truth in that. Because men do sing. I want to remind you of this night. Do you remember this night? I remember this night. This is, this is the great night, right? <laughs> Just almost three years ago now when the mighty dragons and we met here and we watched the dragons triumph, we then heard the word of God preached and then we head down to worship lesser beings uh, down, down only 400 metres away here down at Oakey Jubilee. Do you remember that? And we poured down the oval, some of us, and uh, it was fantastic. We broke the hoodoo 31 years. I was two years old when they'd last won the premiership. And so we went down on this night, and, and here we go, and the dragons are singing you out, right? And all of a sudden, the, the team song comes on the loudspeaker. Thousands of people at Oakey Jubilee, no one asked, but all of a sudden the crowd started belting out, and they're going, oh, when the saints go marching in. Come on, sing along. Oh, when the saints go marching in, I want to be in that number. Oh, when the saints go marching in. Oh, when the saints... Go marching in. And when the saints go marching in, I want to be in that number. When the saints go marching in. It was fantastic, right? Everyone's sort of singing out. And Lord Bennett is being brought out in front of everyone. And the whole team's there. And all these guys are singing their hearts out and all this sort of thing. And none of the blokes were going, oh, this has been embarrassing. Oh, no, I don't know if I want to get into that. Like, you know, we just won the premiership. Thousands of people belting it out. Men and women, no one holding back. Did anyone go down to the soccer, or well, football, right? <laughs> down this week in Melbourne in the MCG to see Liverpool play Melbourne victory, right? So Rob was down there, okay. Now, Rob, 95,000 people belted out the Liverpool song, right? You'll never walk alone, right? And apparently, look it up on YouTube, people who, who were there said they've never heard, is this true? Never heard anything like it. You missed it. <laughs> but, 
Yes. So you've got 95,000 people. If you look on YouTube, you've got grown men with their scarves. You'll never walk alone, you know, as they sing, right? And they're just building it out like this. And one guy, tears in his eyes. Tears in his eyes. And I was thinking, you'll never walk alone. Like, could you imagine playing soccer on your own? That would be awful. Could you imagine if they had to play a game of football and there was no crowd to be with them, there was no one cheering them on, that they had to walk alone. But I was so glad that the, the, the crowd was promising, you'll never walk alone. We're here with you, boys. right? And, and it was for 11 men dressed in red, right, playing football. You'll never walk alone, men. You'll never walk alone. 95,000 people belting it out. Friends, if you have grasped the wonder of God's salvation and the glory of the King and your hearts have been stirred with joy because of what the King has done for you, is there anything more natural than to sing? We sing. But Isaiah goes further than that, doesn't it? And I'll finish with this. Look at verse 4. We don't just sing. Look at verse 4. It says, On that day you will say, Give thanks to Yahweh, proclaim his name, celebrate his works among the peoples, declare his name is exalted. So this song, it's not just a song that's sung in church, it's actually a song that's declared, where does it say? Celebrate his works among the peoples. So basically you know what you've got to do at uni and at school and at work tomorrow? You've got to go to your workmates and you've got to sing. Sing of Yahweh. right? That would be really weird. Don't do that. right? We don't need to sing. We don't need to declare the, God's praises that way. We, but we can talk. We can tell of him. Look at verse 5. It says, Sing to Yahweh, for he has done glorious things. Let this be known, where? Throughout the earth. Right, there's very few passages in the Bible that say, You shall evangelize, you shall tell your friends about Jesus. There's very few commands like that. Why is that? Because there's lots of passages like this where it's very natural, having received salvation, that we're busting to tell others of the salvation that we have that has brought us so much joy. I mean, for example, do you remember when Jesus uh, healed the leper and he said to the leper, don't tell anyone? Did the leper obey him? No, he went and told everyone. Or how about when your teams won the grand final? Do you remember the Dragons in 2010? They won the grand final and Gaznia scored a try. That wasn't a try, but the ref missed it. But that's okay, don't worry about it. And do you remember that? And you're excited and he got the goal and the final siren and so forth and we get excited. And yet when it comes to Jesus in our society, isn't it a crying shame that it's just so uncomfortable to talk about the truths that we hold so dear? Jesus and his gospel. It's uncomfortable to sing his praises. So what do we do about that? Well, we do what I know that lots of you are doing. You just start to introduce Jesus back into your everyday speech. You don't have to sing to your friends. You just need to talk to them. That's all we need to do. Because if you're naturally excited about your own salvation, it'll spill out into your life. Because that's what happens. Isaiah 11, Isaiah 12. The promise of salvation, we sing. And Church in the Bank, can I say this to you? As, we're, as Isaiah says that we should say to each other, let's proclaim him to the nations. 
Let's proclaim him to the nations. And let's sing about him. Uh, Let's pray. Our dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that he is the shoot that came from the stump of Jesse. We thank you that he is the promised king, that he is just, that he is righteous, that he is the warrior king, that he is wise, that he is always filled with your spirit, enabling him to live and die and rise again for us. Father, we thank you for King Jesus. Father, we thank you for the time that he will usher in when when toddlers will pat cobras, when there will be perfect peace. And uh, Father, we just know that uh, that time hasn't come yet. We know that Jesus has begun to usher in his kingdom as we speak the truth about him and people are gathered, are rallied to the Messiah. Um, But Father, we know that we look forward still to the fulfillment of what Isaiah was pointing to here. And Father, we pray too that our not only our lives would be changed and transformed, but what comes out of our lips would be changed, that we would sing the praises of Jesus for what he has done and that we would, we would declare him among the nations. And we pray this for Jesus' name. Amen.